This is part four of Lordship versus Free Grace, which I'm... And again, the reason I uh, say it like that is not to cause any debates or make you pick sides. It's because of the fact that right now, that is how it's framed up in the Christian YouTube space, is people are presenting their opinions on the whole, is the Lordship Salvation theology right, or is Free Grace theology right? So I'm taking advantage of what's already happening and just speaking into that. And hopefully you understand that the way I'm presenting it doesn't make you have to pick a side. I don't want you to pick a side. I just want you to know what Scripture says. And wherever you land theologically on both ends, guess what? You can be a combination of the two. Um, that's, that's pretty much, as you can probably already tell, that's where I stand. Um, and so today we're talking about John chapter 15. <clears throat> In this whole conversation on lordship salvation or free grace, John 15 gets brought up a lot. And I've heard the free grace individual explain it, multiple individuals explain it, and I've heard multiple lordship salvation individuals explain it. And these are like the top-notch teachers. Okay, so I'm not making you pick a side. All I'm saying is, hey, let's understand faith. Let's understand repentance. Let's understand salvation. Let's understand what it means to abide. And so I, I've titled this the theology of abiding. You know, it's interesting. Uh, a lot of you already know this. I've written a whole book uh, over a year and a half ago on this very chapter of John 15. Like I've written a whole book on abiding. And I didn't understand abiding the way I do now. It's frustrating because I want to go back in time and like correct the things I said, but it, it is what it is. It's already on the shelves. You guys already have the book. So I can't change it, but I can write a follow-up. So I'm approaching this, John chapter 15. When you talk about fruit, when you talk about um, what often gets framed up as evidence for faith, John 15 gets brought up a lot. So I'm going to honestly address this as faithfully as I can. And I learned a lot in this study. It's the theology of abiding. You can, you can quote me on this. Again, so far, I have not said, I've said barely anything about works. But I am going to say a lot about abiding. So go to John chapter 15 with me. John chapter 15. This is absolutely foundational. Foundational, man. We need a theology of abiding. And I, I have learned, like I said, a lot after studying this. I thought I knew what abiding was. Apparently not. And that's okay. You learn throughout the course of your life. Praise God for that. Okay. What I'm going to do for you today, and, and just so you know where I'm, I'm going. Okay. Today's episode four. We're talking about the theology of abiding. If you understand abiding, then tomorrow we can talk about fruit. That's right. We can define fruit. And then after that, Monday, the final episode, we're going to talk about works. So today's abiding. Tomorrow, Lord willing, is fruit. Monday is good works. We're done. We're done. This has gone on longer than I anticipated, but it's necessary. I'm going to read through John chapter 15. Okay. And just so you know, I, I have heard both sides in this conversation on the way they interpret John 15, the scriptures they use to reinforce that, the conclusions they come to. I am well aware. I am well aware. All right. So John 15 verse 1, it says, I am Jesus speaking to the disciples. Judas is gone. 
Jesus is speaking to them in the upper room before he's about to be arrested. This is the night of his arrest, resting in crucifixion, which will happen the, the, the following morning. Okay, Jesus says this, I am the true vine. Immediately in the mind of the disciples as Hebrews, they would have understood all the different ideas that are packed into that. Israel's called a luxurious vine. Israel's called a vine quite a bit throughout the scriptures. And so uh, Jesus is slotting himself into the, 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 the category that Israel failed to play. Israel was supposed to be the luxurious, fruitful vine that bore fruit that touched and blessed the nations. Israel was called to embody the ways of God and to carry the character of God. And that's why God gives Israel the law. That's why God, and also to expose their inability, but to show them his ways. That's why they have the law. That's why they have the temple. That's why they have the priesthood. That's why they have all the ceremonial festivals and all the different things. So they stand out. So they are fruitful uh, to the surrounding nations. And the surrounding pagan nations can go, oh, there's a real God among the Israelites. We see it in the fruit. And so Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. Essentially, I'm a child, my fan, I'm, I'm hot. And you wouldn't otherwise get that unless you understand how Israel failed to be the vine that God planted them to be, the fruitful vine. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. This is where we start to get into lordship versus free grace starts to part ways at this verse. We all agree Jesus is the vine. We all agree the father's the vine dresser. He tends to the vine. He's the husbandman. I believe the King James translates it. Verse 2 says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. He, the Father, takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, people get so hung up on the phrase, in me. The assumption that many bring to this text is that both the fruitful branch and the fruitless branch, those are, those are both believers. You can make that assumption. You can use certain texts to, I guess, reinforce that and kind of validate that. But I'm going to show you what we need to understand as we approach John 15, which I believe is a key text in understanding fruitfulness and abiding, is are fruitless branches and fruitful branches believers? Or is a fruitful branch a believer and a fruitless branch an unbeliever? I'm going to do my best to explain why I believe what I believe. And then you can just take the data and bring it before the Lord. Okay, people get so hung up on the phrase in me and assume this fruitless branch that does not bear fruit, that gets taken away, is a believer because Jesus says it's in me. And since that's the case, what they'll do is they'll, they'll assume the burning and the fire and the being tossed away can't be condemnation, can't be judgment, because this is speaking of a believer who's just fruitless, who didn't bear fruit, who was a useless believer to the Lord. Is there such a thing? This branch has no fruit whatsoever. We can say that for certain. It doesn't say there's a little bit of fruit. It doesn't say it bore just enough fruit for God to be happy. It says there is zero fruit. It does not bear fruit. Zero. And we can also say this branch is taken away. Now, we are going to get to the fire, 
But think about this. This language, Jesus being the true vine that Israel failed to be, and God always intended for his son to be the perfect one that no one could measure up to. Of course, Jesus is the perfect resurrected human. But also consider this. If you think about Israel, the taking away here sounds a lot like when fruitless Israel is taken out of the land into exile. It sounds a lot like the wicked tenants in Matthew chapter 21, verse 43 through 44. These wicked tenants who don't give the owner his rightful fruit. It's, Jesus literally says the kingdom is taken away from them and given to a people producing its fruit. And even the Jews, by their own admission, when Jesus goes, what do you think the owner of the vineyard should do to the tenants who killed his son? And they go, oh, they should, that miserable wretch should be put to a death, right? This sounds like the wicked who are removed from the earth in the Old Testament, whether they're nations or individuals or the psalmist crying for the wicked to be removed from the earth, and God promises that they will, they're taken away. This sounds like the one that the ones that get taken away when Jesus returns. One is, you know, one woman is at the mill, two women are at the mill, one is taken away, right? And the other one is stays, or one is, you know, out there in the, in the, in the field, two of them are out there in the field, one is taken away. Those are the wicked that are taken away. Contrary to popular belief about the rapture, that's not the believers taken. It's actually, go read it in context. It says it's likened to the days of Noah. And who was taken away in the days of Noah? The wicked from the earth. Noah stands with his family. Um, it sounds like Matthew 25, verse 30. The worthless servant that's cast into out into utter darkness, outer darkness. Matthew 25, verse 30. And the reason I'm not pulling these up is because this is not even necessary to what I'm going to say. This is just extra. Matthew 25, 45 through 46. The people who are sent into eternal punishment, who don't do what Jesus asks. Jesus separates the goats from the sheep. However you make sense of that eschatologically, meaning however your end times fits into that. There are goats, there are sheep. The goats are taken away into eternal punishment. That's the language used for not doing what Jesus asked. Luke chapter 13, verse 6 through 9, there's a fig tree, parable of the uh, fruitless fig tree, and there's someone tending to it, and then the owner comes by and goes, ah, this tree's worthless, and, and the guy tending to it goes, oh, hold on, give me, give me three years. Give me three years and I'll take care of this. And if it doesn't bear fruit, then sweet, you can cut it down. This sounds like Matthew 13, verse 30, the chaff that's, that's burned and taken away, but the wheat is brought into the barn. Or Matthew 13, 50, the bad fish that are taken away. Uh, Jesus literally says, these are people thrown into the fiery furnace where there's gnashing of teeth. I don't know how you can make that out to be a believer. Or Romans 11:17. 17. Now here's where we get into the text. Romans 11:17. 17, if some of the branches were broken off, taken away, and you, being the believing Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, right? Go down to verse 20, that's true. They were broken off, the unbelieving Israelites, right? How is it that an unbelieving Israelite was ever grafted in in the first place? Romans 9 through 11 makes tremendous sense of that how Jesus is the nourishing root. He is the root of Jesse that shoots forth, right? The stump of Jesse, the root breaks out of that. Jesus is that. He is foundational to everything that Israel had. I mean, everything they had as a unique nation 
found its fulfillment and found its substance in Christ, whether it be the law, whether it be the temple, whether it be the sacrificial system, whether it be the priesthood, whether it be the promises, whether it be the patriarchs. Romans chapter 9 outlines all the things that made Israel unique from every other nation. Jesus is the substance and the fulfillment of that. And so for unbelieving Israelites to be broken off doesn't mean they ever believed. It means they had a national heritage they were grafted into that if they believed, did them good, Jesus being the fulfillment of that. And if they didn't, then they're broken off in that national heritage they had, that descent from Abraham, all the stuff, the benefits they had, did them no good. So they're broken off because of unbelief. Some people like to make this a believer losing their salvation. I don't see that. I see this as someone who never believed, and I'll show you why in the text. Matthew chapter 13, or 3 verse 10. We actually go down to verse 21. If God didn't spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen or those who are cut off. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Okay. And so I'm, I'm only saying this as to be uh, background information for John 15. When he says, I am the true vine, Romans 11 speaks to this. All the parables speak to this. There's a theme throughout scripture, and I think people miss this. From Genesis to Revelation, there's a theme of the fruitless righteous one who is planted and stands the test of time and remains versus the wicked, fruitless, unbelieving one who is taken away. That's not a new concept in the New Testament. From the very beginning, fruitfulness has been what God has desired. Matthew 3 verse 10 Similar to what John the Baptist says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Interesting. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit, and we're not going to even establish what the fruit is today. That's tomorrow. Every tree that is fruitless, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't bear enough fruit. No, there is no good fruit. It's cut down, thrown into the fire. In other words, it's taken away. John 15 will go on to say, that's exactly what happens. The fire is what those fruitless branches are going to experience. Or Matthew 7, 19, every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. I'll get into these passages more specifically uh, when we talk about fruit tomorrow. But the tree that is fruitless, and again, this is not, you know, this tree didn't bear enough fruit. Or this tree, this is a fruitless tree. Zero, no fruit. Hi, Leandra. Good to have you here. It's thrown into the fire. So I think I've given you enough biblical evidence for why I believe so far that John 15 being taken away so might indicate that this is not a believer. But that's not even the most convincing point for me. That's just extra. So every branch that does bear fruit, you know, the Lord, the vine dresser, the father, he prunes. He prunes that it may bear more fruit. So guess what? There is no fruit. There is fruit and there is more fruit. Or what Jesus will go on to say is much fruit. Like in verse 5 and 8, much fruit. Hmm. Hmm. Are these levels of Christians? So these branches don't bear a certain amount of fruit. Again, it's just that they don't bear fruit at all. <laughs> but the fruitful branches that are bearing just fruit, Jesus does say they have the potential for more fruit. Isn't that exciting? Like, 
the amount of, not that we're gonna define fruit right now because I don't think that would be helpful. But just for those of you that understand fruit the way I do, no matter what, you could say fruit is somewhat potential. Isn't that awesome that God makes it so that there can be more for us? <laughs> it's not like, oh, this is all there is. God's like, no, there's more. There's always more. And sometimes it does require the pruning. It does require the removal of what inhibits fruitfulness. It does require something that makes you disease and something that's, you know, perverting what God wants to do. It, to take that away, maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's something that you've been going through. God is taking something away that inhibits fruitfulness to give you more fruit. Don't you love that about our God? He wants more fruit from you, and it's to your benefit. Your fruit can multiply. Your fruit can increase. I love that. I love that. It's like the whole parable of the talents. There's more. And if not on this side of heaven, for sure in the kingdom. For sure. God does reward our faithfulness. So verse 3. Already you are clean. Now who's Jesus talking to? Well, the 11 disciples. Because of the word that I'm sp I've spoken to you. Guys, we got Ronnie here on TikTok. Let's go. Good to see you, brother. He's working from home. He can listen today. So verse 3. The disciples, Jesus specifically says, you are clean already. Now, that might distinguish the cleanness of the disciples being fruitful from those who are not clean and fruitless. Now, you might say there's no biblical precedence for that. That's an assumption. Okay, let's just move forward. The word clean here, as it relates to the word that's spoken, okay, the word clean in the Greek, katharos, it means clean, pure, or literally, uh, it can be literally clean, ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean, spiritually clean, or innocent or guiltless. In the context of John 15, I think all of those are appropriate um, because no matter what, Jesus is relating it to fruitfulness. So their cleanness by the word positions them or, or, or fits them for fruit. They're fitted to bear fruit. So it's the word that has uh, the disciples cleansed. We see this in John 13 verse 10. John 13 verse 10. Jesus says when he's washing the feet of his disciples, uh, the one who has bathed doesn't need to wash because Peter goes, uh, you don't need to wash me, Jesus. This is kind of weird. And Jesus goes, you don't understand. And Peter goes, you'll never wash my feet. Stands his ground. Hmm. And Jesus goes, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. So being washed or being cleaned is to have a share with Jesus. It's very important to understand being washed by him through the word that he preaches, through him being the word, means you have a share with him. Sounds like Romans 11, those who are grafted into him. Or Ephesians 1, we are in Christ. Or Galatians, we're baptized into him. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, don't, don't just wash my feet and my hands, my head. Give me a bath right here. I don't care. Jesus said, hmm, kind of weird. The one who is bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. So the cleanness here, and you might say there is um, maybe, I don't want to get into that right now, actually. Um, right here, they are completely clean. So Jesus says, and he says, you are clean, but not every one of you. Hmm. Who is present when this is happening? Judas. So Jesus himself 
a chapter, two chapters, before we even get to John 15, which by the way, this is all taken, I guess you could say John 15 isn't necessarily in the upper room. It could be they've left the room, at least the the context makes it seem like Jesus has left the room with his disciples. They're heading to the garden and maybe along the way, John 15 is happening, or it could be in the upper room. Either way, this is not too far behind John 15. This might be like hours within it or even an hour within it happening, Judas leaves. And Jesus makes the distinction, you guys are completely clean. Don't worry, not every one of you. Not every one of you. So we have those who are clean and one who is not, that is Judas, and he goes, not all of you are clean. He knew who was gonna betray him, okay? And I think that helps us understand John 15 as being those who are clean, those who are fruitful, those who are fitted for fruit, versus those who are not clean, those who are fruitless. And you go, I don't know, okay, let's keep moving. Ephesians 5, 26, Jesus, and I love this passage about marriage, husbands love your wives. It's not like a goal you attain or like something you check off each day, by the way. It's not like, I did that. Or like, oh, how much do I have to do to finally stop? Like, I, I've done that. Husbands love your wives. That's an ongoing thing. As Christ loved the church. In other words, you have this perfect standard to follow. That's not something you're ever going to attain. That's something to go after so you can continue improving. All the while resting in his grace and knowing that he sets the standard for love. He gave himself up for her, the church, the bride, so that he might sanctify her or cleanse, set her apart, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So the word here, being the metaphorical water that's used, washes or cleanses in the hands of Jesus, the church, okay? Interestingly enough, two chapters after John 15, we have John 17. That's how math works, guys. 15 plus 2 equals 18. That's right. Just kidding, 17. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them in the truth. Now, this is the high priestly prayer. Jesus is praying, Lord, sanctify them. Set them apart. The cleansing and washing is a part of that. In the word or in the truth, your word is truth. So we can see in scripture that the word or the truth of God has a cleansing and washing effect, it seems to be on the soul of a person. And there are those who are clean, there are those who are not. Already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. So he admits they are cleansed, they are washed. Um, branch number one so far abides, okay? Or let's go to verse four. Abide in me and I in you as the branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Hmm. So we got branch number one. Branch number one is clean, seems like. Abides, bears fruit. And then is pruned to bear much fruit, right? Gets pruned. Branch number two. Branch number two is fruitless. Zero fruit. I think we can see, according to verse 3, the contrast being drawn is that this possibly is a branch that is not clean. Again, we can't definitively say that, but I think you're starting to see why I am building a case for that. This branch does not abide. There's zero fruit. It gets taken away. And actually, if you go down to verse 6, it's going to say that it's thrown into the fire and burned. Then you might say, that's just a useless believer. They didn't do anything, but they're saved only as through fire. 
I don't think you can take that text and apply it here. Okay. John 15, 4, again, he says, abide in me and I in you. This is a phrase that even within the book that I've written on fruitful, fruitfulness and abiding, I just, it never stuck out to me like this time around. That's why I tell people the word of God truly is like just bottomless fries. There's always something you can have. There's always something new to see. You can read it for a, you know, a hundred decades, hundred decades and find something new every time. Every time you open the scriptures, God can speak a fresh word through something you knew, but now you know it from a different angle or you know it in a deeper way. And I, in you, I thought that is so, why have I never paid attention to that? Why have I never noticed that? I've always focused on the abiding done by the person. And I never noticed that Jesus abides in his people. Why have I never seen that? You knucklehead. Come on. It's embarrassing. I wrote a book and I didn't even notice that. Jesus abiding in his people. Him abiding in the one who abides in him. Notice this. Jesus abiding in the person seems to coincide with the person abiding in Christ. Now, we can't say that Jesus abiding in the person, which seems to be by his spirit, that that depends on the person's effort to abide. In other words, this is not saying a person tries to abide as if it's an action to take, as if it's something to do, and then God responds and goes, why hello there, I would like to abide in you. And you go, well, come along, let's abide. It seems to be, we can say for sure, that abiding in Jesus does guarantee he abides in us and vice versa. And we can't say that one comes before the other yet, but we can say they always go together. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. In other words, to abide in him is to have him abide in us. Or to have him abide in us is to abide in him. And I know you think I'm, I'm really stretching this text. I have a lot of scripture to support this. So the branch, just the branch, just so you know, he's making a parallel as the branch, back to the whole vine analogy, as the branch can't bear fruit by itself, if it's on the ground withering up, unless it abides in the vine, then he looks at the disciples and goes, Neither can you, unless you abide in me. The unless here. I think more than anything, he's drawing the connection between fruitfulness and abiding. Not necessarily saying there's a possibility for them not to abide. I'll explain why, okay? Fruit is only possible because one is connected to the vine. Do you see that? Fruit is only possible because one is connected to the vine being Christ. Fruit is impossible, on the other hand. Fruit is not possible, impossible, without being connected to the vine. Do you see that? Now you go down to verse 5. I am the vine, and you're like, you already said that. He's like, just to reiterate, you are the branches. In this whole scenario, I'm the one nourishing, strengthening, and supporting you. You're the branch. That's what Jesus says. Not me. I don't support any of you guys. Whoever abides in me and I in him. Do you see it again? Do you see the necessary relation between abiding in him and he abiding in us? That person 
This is a whoever, by the way. This is not a you guys. This is a whoever abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So by the way, you know, um, just like a fruitless, uh, a, a branch disconnected from the vine or the tree um, is fruitless, anyone disconnected from me can do nothing. So what we see in verse five, which is really important, is that whoever abides, he it is that bears much fruit. So what we know is that fruit is guaranteed for those who abide. It's not only possible, okay? It's guaranteed. He it is that bears much fruit. But again, fruit is impossible without Jesus. Abiding guarantees, at least in the text here, much fruit, the kind of abiding that's taking place. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And again, whatever abiding in Jesus is, it can't be disconnected from the person abiding in him. Or whatever abiding in Jesus is, it can't be disconnected from Jesus abiding in them. That's what I meant to say. You can't seem to have one without the other. Abiding in him necessitates him abiding in us and vice versa. Verse 6, I know this is like... You think I'm going a little too detailed, but you're going to see why I'm doing this in a minute or in like three hours. If anyone doesn't abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And guess what? The branches, they're gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. So again, the fruitless branch does not abide, is thrown away, right? Because it doesn't bear any fruit, which I would say potentially is because it's not clean or positioned for fruit right? It withers and it's thrown into the fire and burned. That's, that's the life story of a fruitless branch. Okay, so far, we have not determined whether these are both believers or one's a believer and one's an unbeliever, but I think you're starting to figure it out. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you want, which by the way, what a promise. What a freaking promise. And you and I are like, <laughs> I don't see that. I've done a whole thing on prayer. You should probably go watch it. <laughs> if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. Abiding in Jesus is inextricably connected to his word abiding in us. So far, I want you to track with the text. I know this is boring for some people. Frankly, I don't care. You can leave the live stream. I'd rather you stay, but if this isn't like your cup of tea, it's fine. I'm not supposed to be everyone's cup of tea. The point is, abiding in Jesus is relational to his word abiding in us, just as he abiding in us is connected to us abiding in him. All these three ideas come together so far. Us abiding, or the person abiding in Jesus, his word abiding in the person, and Jesus abiding in that person. The two realities, the three realities, don't seem to be able to be disconnected from each other. They go together. They cannot be separated. Abiding in Jesus, having his word abiding in a person, allows for them to ask, for whatever they want. Abiding plus fruitfulness equals answered prayers. That seems to be the equation of verse seven. Now, verse eight, by this my father's glorified. I like to glorify God, don't you? Some of you are like, no, I don't care. <laughs> That's weird, why are you here? By this my father's glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Now, the free grace individual will step in here and go, yes, this definitively determines 
the free grace extremist at least, okay? Not do injustice to them and falsely uh, misrepresent them, but the extremist individuals on the free grace side of things will step in and go, don't confuse justification with sanctification. Don't conflate discipleship with salvation. And I go, yes. They go, just so you know, there's a difference between a believer and a disciple. And I go, hmm, well, conversation for another day. And so they'll immediately go, since this is a disciple, one who is truly devoted follower of Jesus, a believer who essentially is truly following Jesus, right? They are going to bear much fruit. You can't say this is all believers. Okay. Abiding and bearing fruit proves someone is a disciple of Jesus. Can we say that? Sure. If you want to make a distinction between a disciple and a believer and say not all believers are disciples, but all disciples are believers, that's fine. I would love to talk about that Monday. Not today. God is glorified by someone bearing much fruit, which is why he prunes. Remember, why does God prune the fruitful branches? Because he's angry? Because he's disappointed? Because he's stressed that he won't get enough fruit? No, because he wants you to have more fruit. Not just because he's glorified, because, oh, it so satisfies you. This is the most beneficial thing for your life to actually be pruned and brought through the pruning process and have things taken away and have things die in your life that don't belong so that you can be more fruitful. In this verse, Jesus says much fruit. And I want you to know that. This is very important to pay attention to. Like we saw in verse 5, right here, he bears much fruit, okay? This seems to be different than just fruit in verse 2. And I know some of you are like, oh, he's reading into the text a lot. I want to get to my point so bad, but I need to slowly walk through this. You need to trust me. Okay, you can assume I'm wrong for now, but at least hold on to it when we tackle the other scriptures. In other words, the branch that doesn't bear fruit isn't burned because it didn't bear much fruit. The, fruit, the, the branch right here that gets taken away, right? It's taken away because it doesn't bear fruit at all. Not because it doesn't bear much fruit, right? The issue is not much fruit. The issue is fruit at all. Verse 4 tells us that a branch that doesn't abide can't bear fruit at all. Right? We, we can agree on that. No abiding, no fruit. No fruit. It cannot bear fruit by itself. It doesn't say much fruit, just fruit. Verse 5 is when we come to the concept of much fruit. And that's important to pay attention to. I'm telling you. Jesus is making a statement about a branch that does not abide in verse 4. Okay? The branch that does not abide cannot bear fruit by itself. Not much fruit. Just even fruit. So in verse 5 and 9, we see much fruit happens when someone chooses to abide. Right? Or verse 5. Uh, Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. Verse 9. Or verse 8. If you abide in me, ask whatever you wish. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And the much fruit there seems to be related to having our prayers answered as we abide. Now, this much fruit glorifies God and proves someone is, is a disciple. So I think it's fair to say there's levels to this. There's no fruit, there's fruit, and there's much fruit. Verse 9, as the Father loved me, so have I loved you. Guess what? Abide in my love. Abide in my love. So I want you to see this. 
four ideas so far that come together that are pretty much the same. They can't be disconnected. Abiding in Jesus, abiding in his word or his word abiding in us, uh, Jesus abiding in us and us abiding in his love. So there are two things we abide in, his love and him, right? There are two things that abide in us, Jesus and his word. So we have us abiding, we have his word abiding in us, we have Jesus abiding in us, and we have us abiding in his love. Do you see it? So let me take you to John 15 verse 10, which is the next verse. Let me say this, abiding in the love of Jesus here is no different than abiding in Christ. They're the same thing. It's, it's, a, it's two different ways of saying the same thing, and I'll show you why in John 14, and in 1 John 3, and John 6, okay? So hold on to this. When he says, abide in my love, this is not like another thing to do. This is essentially him saying in a different way, abide in me. This is how, or here's another, here's a clearer way of practically explaining what it means to abide in me. Okay, they're one and the same, okay? Uh, and 2 John is going to testify to this, uh, as we'll see in a minute. We're not 2 John, I think 1 John. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you'll, you will abide in my love. Whoa. So do you see this? To abide in the love of Jesus is to keep his commandments. We've, we've heard, this is so far, nothing about uh, doing, working, the keeping of commandments here has to be defined, and I'll do that. Just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And a lot of people want this to be obedience to Torah, to the laws of God, to what God says in His Word. Hold on, hold on. How do we practically abide in Jesus' love? How do we practically do that? He said it right here, if you keep my commandments. So, Keeping his commandments is how we abide. So far, you, you see where I'm going? So the question becomes, what are the commandments that he has in mind and how do we keep them? Good thing a chapter before this, he explained that. In John 14, verse 15, this is cool. This is why I like you let scripture confirm scripture. It is very, very, very simple. The problem is we want to overcomplicate it with the doctrines that we've been, that have been driven into our minds our whole life. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay? So love is proven or expressed, validated by the keeping of the commandments. He says, I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper. And, see this conjunction? And. So if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And when you do, I'll ask the Father, he will give you another helper. Uh-oh, this sounds like I need to do something to get the Holy Spirit. Hmm, is that what he's saying? He will give you another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Just to be clear, he's talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Whatever this keeping of the commandments is, it comes before receiving the spirit of truth, whom the world can't receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Right? So I'd say knowing him, you know him for he dwells with you. He will be in you, disciples. Meaning, as he's talking in John 14, they do not yet have the spirit 
in them. But he does say he's with you. How? In Christ. So this passage makes it very clear. Watch. The commandment Jesus is asking his disciples to obey, which is his word, it precedes, comes before receiving the Spirit of God. In other words, whatever the commandment being kept or obeyed in John 15 and right here is, okay, it's the commandment we need to obey in order to become children of God, born again, filled with the Spirit. What is that commandment? What is that command? What precedes the indwelling of the Spirit and regeneration? The next passage in 1 John 3 seems to explain that very neatly. Same author, same repeated ideas, same heartbeat. This passage furthers the idea that keeping the main commandment of God we see in John 15 to abide in his love is going to be preceding being filled with the Holy Spirit. And if that was a mouthful, I'll explain it in a second. 1 John 3, beloved, if our heart doesn't condemn us, we have confidence before God. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments, because we do what pleases him. And this is his commandment. Now go back to John 15 for a minute. Same language in verse nine and 10. Or seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. It will be done for you. By this, my Father's glorified. And then you go to 1 John 3, same thing. Because we keep his commandments, whatever we ask, we receive from him. Is potentially the main thing being asked for in context the Spirit? Remember, ask, seek, knock, whatever you ask for, you receive. If you, if you wicked fathers, which by the way, roasting the dads right in front of the crowds, if you wicked fathers know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will your father give the spirit to those who ask? I wonder if the asking and the receiving potentially has to do with, if not the indwelling of the spirit through faith, at least more of the spirit's operation in our life. Hmm. Sidebar conversation. Verse 23, this is his commandment. We're about to define the commandment very clearly so no one can twist this. Here's the commandment we're called to obey or keep or do. Ready? It's that we believe. We believe in the name of his son. That's all John wants us to do. In the gospel, in 1 John, believe. And for those that do believe, I want you to know you have eternal life. Believe in the name of his son and, whoa, love one another. Are you telling me I need to love people to receive the spirit of God? No, I'll explain this in a second. Just as he has commanded us to love one another. Love is going to proceed from faith. There's an inextricable connection between believing Jesus and loving people. It is undeniably connected. How connected? Is it guaranteed? Is it for certain? To what degree? Bro, don't overcomplicate it. Because in, in John 14, it said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love, to love Jesus is to believe. And by doing that, you're reformatted, you're cleansed, you're a new creation to go out and love people, which sounds like John 15. 
being cleansed, the disciples are cleansed for fruit. In Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, just as he's commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God abides in him. There's that, there's that connection again. Abiding in him is God abiding in us. Same thing. The two go hand in hand. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Do you see all the different ideas coming together and colliding in 1 John? Doing what he says, asking for more, we receive it. Loving, right? Believing, abiding, the Spirit. All these ideas come together. And just to be clear, in John chapter 6, verse 29, if I'm like yelling, it's because I'm excited, not because I'm angry. This is not a hellfire message. This is an exciting message. John 6, 29 says, Jesus answered them. Because they go, what do we need to do? What's the work of God? Ah, here's the work of God that you believe in the one whom he has sent. Now we'll get to the whole, what do you mean this is his commandment to believe and love? Love is going to proceed from believing. So it's not that I love to get anything. It's that I'm enabled, empowered by the spirit whom he gives once I believe to go out and love people made in the image of God. Many people read John 15, okay, thinking keeping the commandments here is the way we choose to abide daily. As if it's something we can do or not do at any given moment, when in actuality, keeping the commandments is believing, okay? And that's the way into a reality called abiding. You know why it's a reality and a condition and not just an action? I'm gonna explain the action, but the firstly, abiding is a mode of existence. Abiding is a reality. Abiding is a way that you experience life. It's a condition. You're abiding or you're not. You know why I know that? Because abiding in him necessitates and goes hand in hand with him abiding in us by his spirit through our faith. So there's the element of loving, which we saw in John 14. Loving God was obeying the command to believe. But then there's the resulting love we see in 1 John 3 that we have for God and people which is gonna look like doing what he said once I've believed. How much is guaranteed? How much is, is required? That, that's not the conversation. The point is, there is abiding as a mode of existence and a reality and a condition that I'm in. And then there's the decision to abide, which is the daily decision and a moment to moment decision to love people by doing what God says in his laws, in his word, right? which is to love God through loving his people. So in other words, there's sanctification abiding, and then there's justification abiding. There's the mode of I am abiding, that's my justification. That happens when I believe. The spirit indwells me when I believe. I'm abiding in him, he's abiding in me. But then there's the daily call on the believer to not just, it's not stay saved, keep believing, do this, Keep yourself maintained. Maintain those good works so you can validate your faith. It's now that you're reformatted and you've believed and you're secure and you're his. Go and love people. Go and do what he said prescribed in his law. Every commandment you see, every law given is the way to effectively love God and love people. That's the fruit of me abiding positionally in Christ. And when I choose to daily love, 
ch I'm choosing to abide by doing what he says. By doing what he says. It's a choice to love, actually. Biblically. Otherwise, the whole garden scene makes no sense. There seems to be two kinds of abiding. And I'm, I'm, by the way, don't just go, oh, he's making stuff up. Let me get to all the scriptures. There's two kinds of abiding. There's the much fruit, which results from being pruned and me deciding to do what God says by obeying his laws as a secure believer. And then there's the reality or the mode of existence, a spiritual position and condition that results from believing, and it's called abiding, and that's what guarantees fruit. That's why I distinguished between fruit in verse 2 and much fruit in verse 5 and 8. Because the fruit that is guaranteed from someone who is abiding in Christ spiritually and positionally is different than the much fruit that comes when I choose to abide by doing what he says as a secure believer. It's the difference between justification and sanctification. Or I'm saved, right? And then I'm walking out my salvation. That's the difference. We're not even getting into the conversation of how much? How much is guaranteed? How much should I expect? What if I don't? That's, it, for now, that's irrelevant. For now, that's irrelevant. We need to continue establishing what it means to abide. That's the big question for John 15 and the big old conversation around lordship and free grace and how much do I need? What does it mean to abide? Just so you know, we're about to look at every instance of abiding, first of all in John's gospel and his letter, letters to the church. Then we're gonna look outside of John's gospel and his letter. Then we're gonna look into the Old Testament and you're gonna get what's called, what I've decided to call a theology of abiding, which is gonna extremely validate what I've been saying. In other words, I've, everything I've been telling you, I haven't even really backed up with scripture as well as I'm going to. Okay? And if we can figure out what abiding means, then we can figure out what fruit is, okay? Then we'll be more sure if John 15 is talking about two different believers or an unbeliever and a believer. So what does it mean to abide? How does John use the word abide? Well, so far, I see it as abiding is a mode of existence, a spiritual reality, a condition that I'm in. But it's also from that, sourced in that, is the decision I make daily or on a moment-to-moment -moment basis to abide by doing. Now first, let's look at every time John has used the word abide in his writings alone. In other words, let's keep it local. If we're gonna understand what Jesus says, John's going to have a theology of abiding very clearly outlined in his scriptures, in his writings. So we'll stay local to John, then we'll move outside. The Greek word for abide, this is what's interesting as I studied the word abide. The Greek word abide can be translated as remain, 
It can be translated as abide or stay or wait or tarry or await for. Most of the times it's not an action to do, but something that is taking place to something or someone. It speaks of a condition or reality to be experienced. In other words, you're going to see the word abide translated as, and they remained in Nazareth, or uh, they stayed in the house, or they waited for Jesus to come, you know. But let me show you how John continually uses the word abide. Okay. First John chapter, or John chapter one. I'm going to do my best to be as chronological as I can. So the theology of abiding is consistent with the narrative of scripture as it unfolds chronologically. John chapter one, verse 32, John bore witness. He said, I saw the spirit. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove. Here's our word. And it remained. It's interesting that the very first instance of abiding has to do with the spirit of God, as we've already seen time and time again. So John is recording or recollecting that uh, he saw the spirit of God descend like a dove. Doesn't mean in the shape of a dove, but just as doves descend. It's interesting that he would reference that though. It descended on Jesus at the baptism. He goes, I myself didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, in other words, the father told John the Baptist ahead of time, hey, the one that you see the spirit descend and what? And what? Remain. This is our, our word for abide. I didn't give you the Greek word. The Greek word transliterated meno. Okay. That's how you pronounce the Greek word in the English meno for abide. Here we have meno translated as remain. Same word for abide in John 15. And the spirit descends and remains on Jesus. This is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Do you think it's coincidental that John recalling this or John the disciple recording what John the Baptist said, do you think it's interesting or curious that we have all three ideas that we saw in John 15 and John 14 and 1 John 3, which is that the Spirit of God is remaining on the Son and the Son is going to give or baptize with the Spirit. Isn't that interesting? So what you're going to see so far is that abiding has a strong connection to the Spirit of God. John 14, 17, right? The spirit of truth, we looked at this, whom the world can't receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. The word dwell here, same word, meno, abide, remain. This is why Jesus dwells among his people. He tabernacles. Think of the temple language when God fills the temple, okay? First John chapter two, verse 27 through 28. Okay. First John two. And everything, all I'm showing you is what scripture teaches, man. I'm, I'm not, I don't think I'm overly confident here, but I am very confident 
that what the Lord has shown me is not in error. And I prayed, I pleaded. I said, if there's anything I'm saying wrong that I'm planning, please cut it off. Don't let it happen. And I'm, even as I'm navigating this right now, I'm like, Lord, if there's anything I've planned to say, don't let, it, don't let me say it if you don't want me to. If there are things I haven't planned to say that you want me to, bring it to mind. Help me see things I need to clarify for them. 1 John 2.27, the anointing that you received from him. That's John 14, I promise you. This is Jesus sending his spirit. Whatever the anointing is, it abides in you. And John is sure of it for his audience. You have no need that anyone should teach you. Why? Because the anointing they received from him is going to teach them. As his anointing teaches you about everything. What did Jesus say in John 14? The spirit of God will lead you into all truth. Will teach you the truth. Everything I've said, he'll bring to mind. So the anointing here has to be the spirit of God. Right? I mean, that's what the oil is symbolic of in the Old Testament. As his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in who? Abide in the one who sent you the Spirit. So there is a teaching, right? There is the once, there is the, the, the once for all moment where we come to abide in him and he abides in us by his spirit. But then the spirit of God will teach us what? To abide in him as his people. Do you see it? So, so when I tell you the two kinds of abiding in John 15, one's justification and one's sanctification, do you see why I'm starting? Are you starting to see why I come to that conclusion? Because we're currently the believer being spoken to has the spirit in them, abiding in them. The anointing teaches them the truth and they already have the spirit. They're abiding in the spirit. They're filled with the spirit and the spirit of God is teaching them how to abide, but they're already abiding. It's that second level. It's the, it's the bearing much fruit. That's what we're looking at here. I promise you like first John three twenty four. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. Now, we just read this because we referenced it in John chapter 15. But I'm bringing it to mind so you know the Spirit of God here has a lot to do with the abiding terminology, the theology of abiding John uses and develops. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. We already talked about how that's not the doing, that's the believing. You come to abide in him, he abides in you. Because look, the abiding here and the God in him abiding go hand in hand and result from keeping the commandment to believe. By this we know, by this we know, he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given us. So again, there's the once for all abiding that happens the moment of faith, and then there's the continual decision not to keep myself saved, not to stay saved, not to maintain my salvation and validate what I have, but just to enjoy by abiding as I decide, okay? So we already see abiding relates to the Spirit of God. Now I want to show you abiding relates to the Son of God. Okay? John chapter 6, verse 56. This is really cool, man. The theology of abiding. If there's anything worth sharing, I would share this video with your friends and family because this has changed my life. Even just in these last few days of studying. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. That's the being filled with the spirit, right? Being grafted into Christ. Cause you think about your spiritual reality as a believer, 
Christ doesn't just dwell in you, you're in him. He talks about how he's in the Father, you're in him, the Spirit's in you. You're immersed in God when you are born again. And so Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh, which is a metaphorical way of saying, come to me and believe. Very simple. To come is to believe. To feed is to believe. To eat the bread from heaven, metaphorically, is to believe and eat the bread of life he's offering you through his laying down of his life. And drinking his blood, same giving up of himself, shedding his blood, paying for our sins. The penalty of our debt is paid by his precious blood that was shed. So to abide in him is to have him abide in us. That requires us to what? Believe. Believe. There's the mode of existence, the reality of abiding. It relates to the son. It relates to the son. John 14, 10, it says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me? Which, another way of saying, the abiding. <laughs> the abiding. The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. Later, Josh. He has to go. Bummer. I don't speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells. There's our word. There's our word. Abide. Meno. Which can get translated to dwell. The Father who dwells in me does his works. Is Jesus denying his participation with the Father? Is Jesus denying that he has a hand in being a usable vessel to the Father and submitting to the will of the Father and doing what the Father commands and walking into a room and only doing what he sees the Father doing? Is he denying his free will activity in this? No. So why does he say the Father who lives in me, you know, presumably by the Spirit, is doing his work? I really want you to understand the relationship Jesus has with the Father, the way the Father works through the Son, that exact thing Jesus packages, ties a beautiful bow on it, then he presents it to us when we get saved. And he goes, now you can have what I have. The Father will be in you. You'll be in the Father. The Father will do his works through you. This is the relationship we have. It's a package. It's a package, okay? So I want you to see the Father dwells in the Son. And then Jesus promises that he will dwell in his people by his Spirit, that him and his Father will come and make their home in the people who believe, who eat the flesh, who drink the blood, metaphorically speaking. Okay, John 14, 25. These things I've spoken to you while I am still with you. This actually gets translated as with you, but it's the word meno. He's with him. The Spirit is with them. The Father is with them and in them. So there's the... Ah, we'll get to it when we get to it. We'll get to it. This is cool. John 12, 34. The crowd answered him, Hey, we heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. There's that word meno again. Because, you know, they're thinking, You gonna die? What? If you're the Messiah, you're going to stay forever. You're going to remain. <laughs> you're not the Messiah, boo. Because they're thinking, the, the law tells us that Christ remains forever. Oh, he does. Oh, he does. The Son abides forever. Promise you that. So that's how it relates to the Son. Do you see how so far, what has been noted about abiding as it relates to the Spirit and the Son, but also each time it's a dwelling, it's a being 
it's a condition apart from the spirit like descent well i guess even the spirit descending on jesus same thing now i really want to show you how the word of god comes into play the word of god comes into play pretty strong Oof. Take a break. You're starting to see that abiding is a condition. A reality, the mode of existence. The spirit in him, him and the father, him remaining. Us abiding in him as we feast on his flesh. Now let's bring the word of God into this. Okay. And just to be clear, in John 15, I'm not making this up. You see all three of these things present. You, his word abides in you. Jesus abides in you. His spirit abides in you. You abide in him. All of these things are present right there in that small section of John 15. And if you miss it, of course you're going to come to wrong conclusions about John 15. Everyone's hung up on, well, how much fruit? Is this an unbeliever? Bro, what? let's explain what abiding is. 1 John 2, 24. It says, let what you heard, and this cues, this is key, let. Let what you heard from the beginning, John speaking to believers. Let what you heard abide in you. If, if you let it, if you let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, being what? The word that saves, the truth of the gospel that you believe in then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. The promise he made to us for what? For letting what you heard abide in you. Because there's the condition. I wish I had this passage on hand when I talked about the different kinds of faith. Like there is a mere acknowledgement of facts. There's a mere acknowledgement of the information and agreement with the facts. And then there, which is like a kind of surface level reception, eh, that's true. But then there's like the actual faith. And I talked about this in the first episode. So if you're going to jump on me now, not a good idea. You should probably watch the first episode on faith for three hours first. Then come attack me. But I want you to see. We're going to see how abiding actually gets translated continuing in the New Testament. Greek word for abide also can get translated as continue. We see it in Acts 13, continue in the grace of God. Acts 14, continue in the faith. Romans 11, continue in his kindness. Colossians 1, continue in the faith. 1 John 2, if they continued with us, they would truly be of us. Hebrews 8, 9, they didn't continue in my covenant. Romans 6, why would we continue in sin? So there is a continuing nature to faith. And that's why Jesus is going to tell the crowds in John chapter 8, verse 31, hold on to this, because here's what it might sound like. I want to play devil's advocate for a second. Here's what it sounds like to some of you. You're like, oh, you're telling me I have to decide the gospel that I heard. I have to do it. I have to decide, do something on top of faith, decide to let it abide in me. And if, I, if what I heard from the beginning abides in me, then I'll abide in the Father. Read it again. 
if, let's just take this statement as its own and then we'll connect it to the previous. If what you heard, the gospel, abides in you, you too will abide in the Son and the Father. This abiding in the Son and the Father is salvation, is justification, is your redemption, is you being born again, is you being indwelt with the Spirit. This is the moment of faith unto salvation. To abide in the Son and the Father happens when you believe. If that's the case, why is it conditioned upon the word abiding in me? Why is it conditioned upon the word remaining in me? Now we can back it up to verse the beginning. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Okay. I don't, here's what I don't believe John is saying. I don't believe he is saying. So if I, if I wasn't clear previously, I apologize. I don't believe John is saying, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Then you'll abide in the son and the father. I don't think that's what he's saying because the letting gets in the way. If he is saying that, then John 8 31 might make a little more sense. So let's hold on. Let what you heard from the beginning abide or remain in you. If what you heard abides in you, you too will abide in the Son and the Father. So I'm going to retract that previous statement. I do believe there is a degree of, apparently, I consciously decide when it comes to faith unto salvation. I consciously decide to believe, which is another way of saying, letting the word of God abide in you to find a place in you. And here's why. Let me take you to John 8, 31, and then we'll kind of parallel it to this because I think this is worth drawing out. Jesus says to the Jews who had believed, and I explained in the very first episode why the believing here is a surface level, shallow, mere, agreement with the facts or acceptance of the information. Jesus says to the Jews who had believed, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples and you know the truth and set you free. So in other words, we don't have to take this all as a whole. What he is saying is, hey, to be set free from sin, you need to know the truth. You need to know the truth. And that requires you to abide in my word. Another way of saying believe like actually believe because, ah, where is it? I gotta pull it up. No, that's not it. Go away pages. John 8, 37. Oh, duh, it's like two, yeah. Okay, look, look what he says to the same crowds, to the same crowds. I know your offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. That reminds me of when Jesus speaks of unclean spirits when they're cast out and they go looking, they go looking for a place to rest. They wander in water through waterless places looking for rest. And then they come back to the place they were removed from and they bring friends with them. They're looking for a place. That's the idea. The word of God, according to the parable of the sower, is looking for, seeking for. The word of God is actively, I guess, 
like detecting for soft ground. Not hard ground, not rocky soil, not thorny soil, soft, receptive, humble ground, which will produce faith in the hearer. So his word finds no place in the crowds. That's why he addresses their kind of belief that John notes. He tells them, you need to abide in my word, which was 1 John 3 tells us his word needs to abide in us. I don't believe those are different things. I believe us abiding in the word to believe is the same thing as his word abiding or remaining in us. The nature of faith, as I've tried to explain over and over and over and over again, the nature of faith is that once it's initiated or set into motion, it will continue to the end. I'm not saying it's not a bumpy roller coaster ride. I'm saying there's ups and downs, there's ebbs and flows. There are times where you want to jump off a bridge and there are times where you're standing on a mountain going, I can feel the Lord. But the point is faith by definition and by nature continues to the end. That's why Jesus speaks of his word abiding, remaining, staying, continuing in a person and they continue, stay, remain, abide, in his word. And when the word of God finds a place in a soft soul and faith happens, you're abiding in the word and the word is abiding in you. And the result of that faith and that abiding relationship is that guess what? You are in the son and in the father because isn't Jesus the word of God anyway? And eternal life is promised Abiding in the Son and the Father is promised to those who have what they heard abiding in them. Okay. You guys don't see it yet. I know some of you don't. I know some of you don't. If you go down, same passage, same chapter, John 8, same, same message. He goes, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, which is another way of saying you're saved. You truly set you free. I don't understand why, why people get all caught up. Are you a disciple or a believer? At least right here, Jesus is saying, if you abide in my word, you'll be free from sin. He talks about that. You're enslaved to sin. You practice sin. You'll be free indeed. You're not. You look for a place to kill me. But look at verse 35. Same word, abide, meno, gets translated remain. He says the slave, which goes back to Galatians, Ishmael versus Isaac, Hagar versus Sarah, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son, the son remains forever. Ah, there's so much going on here, man. This is Jesus answering them, essentially, where they go, isn't the Messiah supposed to remain forever? Well, at least that happens in John 12, but it's kind of building up to that. I mean, this is Jesus. All throughout the Old Testament, there are those who remain in the earth and there are those who don't. And Jesus is the son who remains. And anyone who is grafted into him remains with him as a son. As a son. Do you know why the son remains forever? 
because he has a rightful place in the household to continue in the, in the Father's name and continue with the inheritance and stay and remain when it's all said and done. Jesus is the true Son. So to abide in him is to be positioned or grafted into him. And if he remains and he's the true son, then we as beloved children remain with him when the wicked are removed, when the enemies are gone, when sin is done and death is done and the dust has settled. What remains are those who are grafted in the son because they've abided in the word, which is another way of saying believing. And that word by nature, by definition, remains forever. Because Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, my word will not. So since the word coming from God carries that same nature of remaining and everlastingness, since it's eternal as God is eternal, then the word and what it produces and the faith that produces is produced by that gospel and by that truth, that faith will also be a remaining faith. There's no way to get around it. There is absolutely no way to get around it. God remains the same. His son remains the same. His word remains when everything's said and done. Heaven and earth passes away. His word remains. So what is produced by his word, the faith remains. And the people who are grafted in the son remain. It's crazy. The opposite is also true in John 12, 46. He said, I've come into the world as the light. Why? So that whoever believes may not remain in darkness. I'm going to say it is helpful for the sake of terminology, at least as we discuss abiding in a positional sense. I'm comfortable with saying believing is synonymous with abiding initially. I'm even comfortable with saying the decision to progressively abide, which by the way, doesn't change my security if I don't, but the nature of my decision to continue abiding and do what he says and love, that is also me believing because faith is action. Faith has action. 1 John 2, 6, abiding, abiding, abiding. Uh, whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. I didn't get to that part. <laughs> may not remain in darkness. So guess what? There are those who remain in the sun and remain in the light and remain in, in the word, right? And his word abides in them and he abides in them. And then there are those who remain or stay or abide in the darkness, which you're going to see. Thank you for that gift. You're going to see at the end of John 8, Jesus will address the Pharisees who go, are we blind? And he goes, if you were blind, you wouldn't be uh, essentially condemned or guilty. The darkness thematically in John refers to spiritual blindness, if not sin. Okay. I have to pee, but this is exciting. First John 2, 6, by this, we may know that we are in him. So again, here's the nature of abiding. I'm in Christ. He's in me. That's an eternal thing. How can we know that? How can we know that? By this, we may know. What is John insinuating? I should have prefaced this. First John, before I jumped into first John, I should have said this. 
a lot of people will get around these statements and this theology by just chalking every statement up to, well, John's addressing Gnosticism. As if that changes what he's saying. As if that changes like the very simple, basic message that's getting, uh, that he's getting across. I do believe he's addressing Gnosticism in this letter. Do I believe every single statement and every theme and every pattern and every idea is addressed purely to Gnostic thinking? No. Even if it is, let's just say every verse in 1 John is like defending scripture and truth and fighting Gnosticism. Does that change what he says here about those who abide in him? How do you know we're in him? John is making a, the assumption is you can know you are in him and there should be a way to know. Whoever says he abides in him, and by the way, if you guys are like, I don't see, thank you, Amber, for that gift. If you guys think I'm not like engaging in the chat, that's, I'm purposely not looking at the chat. Like I'll, I'll look every now and then if I see something interesting, but I can't be distracted right now. Like, I don't think if Jesus, I think if Jesus came now and he was like using technology and stuff, I think he would have the chat closed down. So I'm not like Jesus yet, but cause I have to keep my eye out for people that need to be removed and stuff. So if I'm not like answering your questions cause it's distracting and it's off topic. Whoever says he abides in him, whoa, to be in him is to abide in him. It's a position. It's a mode of existence. It's a reality. Do you see it? If you say that, you ought to walk in the same way he walked. Well, that's believing. That's believing. Walking is, of course, action, activity. But I wouldn't say it's not sourced in faith. Because some people will say, well, John isn't even, they'll say like John um, is saying, whoever abides in him should believe in the gospel. Is that what he says? Is that what he says? Or does he say walk like he walked? That's activity, my friend. <laughs> That's action, my friend. That's doing, my friend. <laughs> and then the question becomes, well, I can't really know him because I, I can't really know I'm even in him because I don't know how much I need to do or how much I need to walk out. Herein lies the reason humans overcomplicate simple things. We want those human measurements and standards to reach. We want a ruler to measure it all by. It's like, what if fruit is relative to what God wants to do in a person's life and their role in the body, man? We want to put human measurements on it where it's like, well, how many good works and how do I know I'm walking? And when is walking walking? And when is it not just sitting or crawling? You see how ridiculous this gets? First John 2, 8 through 10. At the same time, okay, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. And by the way, this commandment that John is writing is true in Christ. Here's the language. Here's that language of being connected to, grafted in, immersed into, baptized. You're in him. Well, the commandment he's writing is true in him and in you. Why? The darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light, which by the way, it, to be in the light, to be in the light 
is a mode of existence. It's a spiritual reality. It's a condition. To be in the light doesn't mean I can't ever or won't ever do anything related to darkness. I'll never sin. I'll never do anything bad. I'll never make a mistake. I thought God covered all my sins. Even This is saying to be in the light is to be in Christ. He is the light. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. That's, that's what John 12, 46 said. If you don't believe, you remain in darkness. So those who believe are in the light. Those who don't believe are in the darkness. Condemned under the penalty of sin, separated from God in exile. Those who are in the light in Christ through faith are not. They're free from condemnation. This is not a believer who's like, I'm in the light now. Whoa, I'm in the darkness. Whoa, I'm in the light. Whoa, I'm in the darkness. This is two different people. So whoever says he's in the light, in Christ, believing, and hates his brother, is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. It's a mode of existence. And in him, there's no cause for stumbling. So to be in the darkness is in the darkness is different than walking in the darkness. I will admit to you, in, jo in John's letter, he talks about walking in the light. But being in the light is a mode of existence while walking in the light is doing and with what I have God's given me, responding to what God has said and, and obeying and loving, that's walking in the light. And that doesn't change the fact that I am in the light. That doesn't make me more in the light. I'm still in the light and my life is gonna reflect that. And even when it doesn't, and I stumble into the darkness and I make a mistake, that's not an excuse, but I am still secure positionally in the light. So if you wanna make this, if you wanna make this, Oh, he's just talking about how a Christian is living. No, 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 no. I ripped that away from you, friend. That's gone. You can't stand on that. These are believers. Because what people will do is they'll say, well, 1 John is addressed to the brethren and the believers and the children of God. Is John accusing them of not believing? Or is he making statements about those who don't believe or claim to believe but really don't? It'd be different if John was telling them directly, hey, y'all in the darkness. In the end of 1 John 5, he says, look, you guys believe. You can know you have eternal life. Yes, clap it up. But he's going to make statements about potentially those in their midst or those who will hear and read this letter or those who eventually throughout human history will read this. He will make statements about those who are not in the light or who profess to know but don't really know or who claim to believe but don't. Abiding in the light, abiding in him or abiding in the darkness or abiding in the house or abiding in his word. These are conditions. And again, here's like how we can draw that distinction I made in John 15 where I said, look, abiding is something that uh, is, is happening. As I believe I'm abiding in him, he's in me, that doesn't change, that happens by faith. But there is that secondary abiding, that is, I am choosing to work out my salvation and do something with the faith God's given me. I'm choosing to love, I'm choosing to do what he says, I'm choosing to obey God. When I do that, 
That's a different kind of abiding that is still rooted in faith. It is still rooted in faith. But that's sanctification versus justification, right? Same thing here. Being in the light, justification. Walking in the light, sanctification. John will make it abundantly crystal clear. It's wonderful, man. It is so wonderful to know you can read the scriptures and understand. You can understand, man. You don't need me. You can just read the scriptures objectively and remove all the presupposition. Just go, Lord, honestly teach me. 2 John 1, we're still talking about abiding. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. And not only I, but also who know the truth. Because of the truth, this, this is worth highlighting over and over because you guys need to see how the truth here is key, okay? John loves in the truth. Why? Truth will produce what is consistent with it. If you believe the truth, then what will be produced in your life is going to be consistent with the truth you believed. If you believe the truth of Christ and God who is love, loved you and laid down his life and, and all that love, the message of the gospel is love. If you believe in that, then the fruit that is produced from that faith is going to be consistent, meaning love. Love will produce, will be produced from the truth you've believed and abides in you. All who know the truth, he loves. Because of the truth that abides, there's our word. Everyone say abide. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us. Well, I don't know, like what if I stop? What if I don't? What if I, forever, bro, forever. What's John saying? The truth you've come to believe and know not only has produced love in John, but it abides in those who believe and is with them forever. Forever. Why is faith by definition and by nature a continuing, lasting, enduring, eternal belief? Because that's what the truth of the gospel produces in the heart of a person. That's why you're eternally secure. Because it doesn't rest on your ability to continue, continually ascending to the facts and agreeing with the information. God will sustain what has been initiated by your free will decision to believe. And now he partners with you and ensures he will continue what he started in you. 2 John 1.9 Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching in the teaching, the teaching, the truth, the word of Christ. Well, they're probably just struggling with their sanctification. They're probably just having a rough patch. They probably just need to come back home. They don't have God. Did not see that coming. Did not see that coming. Remember, to abide in the word is to have the word abide in you. So, those are like two different ways of saying the same thing. 
to abide in the teaching, the truth, the gospel is to have his word abide in you. And if that's not happening, if you don't have the truth abiding in you, if you don't abide in the truth, if there's no place for the gospel in your heart, if there's no faith, do you know what John would like you to know in the most loving way possible? He's writing to believers. Does that change the, the, what he's saying? <laughs> Whoever doesn't abide doesn't have God. Why? Because to abide is to believe. You can't have God without the Son. You can't have the Son without believing. Abiding not only relates to the Spirit of God, the Son of God, and the Word of God. I almost don't even have to go to John 15 again and be like, here's what, like, these scriptures in and of themselves provide the contextual support from the same author and the same God who empowered that author to actually give you an understanding of John 15. I don't even need to. John 6, 27. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures or remains to eternal life. Whoa. Which, by the way, the Son of Man gives. What's that? His own life. He gives His very life force spiritually with the Father, gives that to you when you believe. And the food, the work He already said in John 6 is to believe, right here. So to work for the food is to believe that Jesus is the bread from heaven and to believe and trust in Him alone, right? And that work that God wants us to do to believe produces eternal life that endures. There is a food that endures to eternal life. There is food that perishes. It is very simple. It is very simple. The food that perishes is anything outside of and not in faith in Jesus. But if you want to last, and this is the difference, there are those who abide and remain. There are those who perish because their source of life is something that is perishing rather than something that endures to eternal life being Jesus. Everyone's connected to a source. Everyone relies on something. Everyone is latched onto something. Everyone is drawing a sense of strength, security, life, breath, energy from something. And consciously and intentionally. I'm, of course, God is, sustains us and gives us life, but you know what I mean. You know what I mean. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, period. Boom. Whoever does not obey the Son, which is to believe, shall not see life. Why? The wrath of God remains on him. What's that? That's what we saw in John chapter 12, that those who don't believe remain in darkness, which is another way of saying they remain under the wrath of God. Thank you, Christian. Man, you guys are crazy today. Thank you. The wrath of God remains on someone who doesn't believe. But guess what? The, the person who does believe abides or remains forever in the Son. It's cool. So when you get to John 15, you're going to understand so much more. 1 John 3. Man. Listen, we know we've passed out of death into life. See, we can know we're saved without any evidence because we love the brothers. Well, how much do I have to love? How far? I don't know, like, how to even qualify that. What if I'm doing a terrible job? How long can I go without loving? What if I was a jerk to my mom? Does that mean I haven't passed out of death into life? Because we love 
the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. You can abide in darkness, remain in darkness. You can have the wrath of God abide on you. You can abide in sin or you can abide in life, in Christ, in his word, and in God. In John 15, it is about remaining. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. I didn't say it. John did. And you know no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I'm going to let that sit there. I'm going to let that sit there. Because there are some free grace extremists that will say, you know what? If there is someone, hypothetically, and they'll, they'll say, don't live in hypotheticals. That doesn't happen. That won't happen. That isn't happening. And I go, okay. But you're admitting if it does, it's okay. They'll say, let's say I'm a six-year-old. I raised my hand. I said, I believe in Jesus. And then for the rest of my life, I, I, I become an atheist. I push back against God. I teach everything contrary. I try and lead people away from him. I, fight. I hate people who represent him. I become a Satanist. I actually murder people. They would say, yeah, that person's good if they believed. Does that not fly in the face of this verse? Does that not fly in the face of this verse? By this we know love, he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good, sees his brother in need, it sounds like James 1 and 2, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? In other words, how does that have person have eternal life abiding in them? So don't think this is just, oh, a believer who's lacking love. This is a person who seems to be lacking eternal life because they don't have God abiding in them who is love. And eventually, that truth and the God who lives in them will produce love. This is a fruitless branch. This is a branch, a person that does not have the character of Jesus. Little children, let us not love in word or deed, but in talk and in truth. Aren't you tired of hearing about how much people love each other and never seeing it? Aren't you tired of the Facebook posts of good vibes? Okay, can you do something? Nah, just good vibes. It's all I can do. Yeah, your good vibes do me. Diddly squat. Abiding. can actually be related to people. Watch, 1 John 2, 17. The world is, and again, this is just local to John's writings. I have not gotten out to 1 Corinthians, Hebrews, Peter, Old Testament. This is, I ain't playing today. I promise you that. 1 John 2, 17, the world is passing away along with its desires. What's fading? What won't remain? What will be removed? what is of this world, the doctrines, the patterns, the habits, the teachings, the sin, the people, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now the will of God has been clearly defined as believing. So if you want to abide forever and stand the test of time and be there when it's all said and done, standing before the living God in the new earth, instead of being taken with the wicked and the world, you gotta believe. So guess what, you can abide and you will abide forever. Do you see that? 
by definition and by nature, abiding itself when it's initiated will last forever. This is not just a general sense of, ah, you'll just be here. It's like, you'll be in him. He'll be in you. You'll be in his kingdom. You'll be in his family. His spirit will dwell in you. That's a forever thing. So when I say belief by definition and by nature is eternal, is lasting, lasts forever, I mean it because abiding can be synonymous with believing. That's what it is. I do, I do not know. I do not know how people can find a way around this. Verse John 3, man, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. I promise when we get to the fruit conversation tomorrow or the works conversation on Monday, this verse will be addressed in great detail. But I'm just going to skim over it for now because I have a lot more ground to cover. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And abiding is a mode of existence, a spiritual condition. It's being in Christ. It's believing. You might say, no one who believes keeps on sinning. Oof. Oof. And someone's going to accuse me and soundbite this and go, did you hear Above Reproach Ministry? I don't even know his name because he never tells us his name. He just said, if you, uh, if you, if you don't, if you keep on sinning uh, or if you, uh, Someone who has faith won't keep on sinning, and if you do, you don't have faith. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. To abide in him is to have faith. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Can it, can it get any clearer? This is, you don't belong to him. You're not saved. You're not a child of God. However else I can freaking say it, you're not going to heaven. If you see the reality of what John is calling a progressive keeping on sinning. Now, the pushback that I get, and I'm going to answer it when we get to it, is, well, how, when is it keeping on? When is it a practice? When is it a practice? Because you say believers can struggle with sin and have moments of sin and even have lapses and seasons of sin. What makes practicing different? When is it a practice? I think you and I both know the answer, buddy. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Not because they practice righteousness, but because they believed on the Son who makes them righteous, which results in a practice of righteousness. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy, obliterate, decimate the works of the devil. Sin. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Can it be any clearer? I think this is saying... And again, the, the cover, the, the card someone's going to pull is, uh, it's just Gnosticism. <laughs> uh, he's talking to believers, so he can't be talking. No one born of God. Both of those things are true. He's talking, he's trying to fight against Gnosticism and he's talking to believers. It doesn't change the meaning of this very simple, plain interpretation. No one born of God. John chapter 1. Unless you're born of God, you can't see the kingdom. You, to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. No one who is a child of God, makes a practice of sinning. Because God's seed abides, remains in him, the nature of abiding is that it lasts forever. The Spirit of God indwelling a person lasts forever. Me being in Christ lasts forever. He can't keep on sinning. He's been born of God. The last one, and then we're going to look elsewhere in the New Testament after I go pee, is in 1 John 4. And again, this is a theology of abiding. No one has ever seen God. 
If we love one another, God abides in us. His love is perfected in us. Is this God abiding in us like just a greater sense of his spirit, a greater awareness of his presence? He's filling us more. No, it's the actual reality of God indwelling a child of his. And if we love one another, then that truth is validated. By this we know we abide in him. And he in us, there's that undeniable connection again. When you abide in him, when you abide in his word, when you abide in the Father, by faith, he abides in you. His word abides in you. His spirit abides in you. Because he's given us of his spirit. And we've seen and we testify the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Look, whoever confesses Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. Is it a mere confession only? Apparently not, because the rest of John's writing talks about the doing, talks about what you believe, talks about what you confess, talks about what is there and what's not. So you can't just limit, make this a restrictive statement. Whoever confesses Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. There it is again. When we get to John 15, you're going to see that profound connection over and over. To abide in him is to have him abide in us. So we've come to know and to believe the love God has for us. Do you see the close connection between believing and abiding as if they're the same thing? God is love. So if you're going to say you abide in God, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So if you're going to say, I, I, I abide in God, I'm a child of God, I believe, okay, then God abides in you is what you're saying. And so there should be evidence of him abiding in you. How much? What does it look like? Tomorrow. I keep saying that. Every time I'm planting fruit, God says, not yet. Talk about this. So I'm like, okay, I'll do what you say. This commandment we've received from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. <sighs> Potty break. If you've not already done this, go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. We have a bunch of free resources that are made available to anyone around the world, completely free and accessible to anyone who wants to learn how to read the Bible. We have free online Bible study courses that will teach you how to read the Bible. We have free study devotionals that walk you through specific patterns and keywords in the book of Ephesians. We have free Bible study worksheets. We have Bible study workshops. We have all this free content because of generous supporters like you guys. And if you want to support this ministry, we're teaching people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. And there are a bunch of ways to donate. You can go to AboveReproachMinistry.com slash donate. You can give through debit or credit card. You can send a check to P.O. Box 338, uh, Green Cove Springs. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Patreon. And then you can also get some church merch. If you've not already grabbed some church merch, I would recommend you do that so you can represent Jesus on your body. And all the proceeds go right back into this content so that we can reach more people and equip people to, you know, live and teach the Bible themselves. And if you didn't know this, I actually have a book. I've published a book. It's called Fruitful. And the point of this book is to be a resource to the church to teach people um, the essential keys for the most abundant Christian life this side of heaven. And so in this book, what I do is I, I outline the gospel absolutely clearly so you can actually know what the foundational truth is and then from there we discover what our purpose is what our process is and what our position is now in Christ so if you 
are a new believer or if you're a believer that really wants to understand what I believe are the essential key truths that a lot of people don't understand in the church, I would grab a copy. And if you haven't already joined our online church, get in that online church. We have a lot of cool stuff happening, events every single day pretty much. Uh, We're in there praying and fellowshipping and gathering and growing together as a community. And the last thing is this. If you haven't already checked out our podcast, uh, we have podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else where you can get a podcast. And pretty much all the content on YouTube, the live streams, what we do is we um, make that into podcast format so you guys can just listen on the go. So go check that out if you have not already. And let's get back to the video. Uh... Okay, we're back. Can I share my heart real quick? I don't do this because I'm whatever, fill in the blank of you think I am. I do this because I think they're, one of the thoughts that came to me when I was just getting water is just, uh, for some reason, in free grace theology, if you bring up the aspect of works or fruit in any capacity, as it relates to faith or evidence, it becomes a, oh, you're trusting in your works. Oh, you're trusting in your fruit. Oh, you're looking to you. And I want to make this very clear. To care about how I live doesn't mean I trust in my works. If I care about how I live, if I care about the fruit I'm producing, that does not automatically mean, and it's not like the only option is, Oh, he must be trusting in his works and not Christ. That's the, that's the dilemma here. That's the dilemma. You guys ready to move on to the rest of the New Testament? Okay. I'm just going to real fast go through this. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, it says, Faith, hope, and love abide or remain these three. The greatest of these is love. There's the whole remaining conversation. Hebrews 10, 33 through 34, I'll just pull it up actually so you can see it. Sometimes being publicly exposed, um, you had compassion on those in prison, joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Uh, Since you knew you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one, a remaining one, one that lasts. See? 1 Peter 1.23, just so you guys know, I believe genuine faith that is produced by the truth of the gospel is by nature going to be an abiding, lasting, continuing, eternal faith. 1 Peter 1.23, it says, Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Now, someone will say, well, this is just speaking to the new life you have that it abides and remains because of the fact that God's word abides and remains. I would also say that because faith is a part of the born again process, that faith coincides with the new, the new nature and the new life. Now, in the New Testament, the Greek word for abide Another legitimate translation is the word continue. Continue. The word meno can also be translated continue. Acts 13.43, the disciples are urged to continue in the grace of God. 
Acts 14, 21 through 22, they're told to continue in the faith. In Romans 11, 22 through 23, Gentile believers and even those who are arrogant and seem to be like, I don't know, whatever it is, okay? Um, in Romans 11, 22 through 23, it says to continue in his kindness or you'll be cut off. Now you can jump around that all day. I don't believe you can lose your salvation. I've talked about that. Colossians 1, 22 through 23, it says continue in the faith if indeed so like you're holy and blameless and above reproach if you continue in the faith. Not that continuing results in that holiness, but that holiness and blamelessness and a being above reproach in Christ through faith is evidenced by the continuing nature of your faith. 1 John 2.19 talks about how those who left or went out from us, left, abandoned, stopped believing, whatever it is, they were not of us. If they were, they would have continued with us. That doesn't mean followed our local church. It doesn't mean they would have not left uh, our church community and gone to another church. It means continuing in the faith. Hebrews 8, 9, the issue with the old covenant as it relates to the people, Marcus, the issue that persisted with the human heart as it related to the first covenant is that they did not continue in the old covenant. So what does God do with the new and the new heart and the new nature and all that? Well, he ensures and enables us, not against our free will, but in partnership with our free will, that when you believe, you will continue in the covenant. Number one, Jesus is upholding his end or our end. Like we're not holding up one end of the covenant. It's like, this is really heavy. Jesus is holding that. So if I am grafted into him and he doesn't change, he doesn't fail, he's reliable. Then anyone in him um, is also guaranteed to continue. Romans 6, 1 through 2 tells us, hey, look, are, are, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? No way. And often free grace individuals will be called cheap grace or, you know, all these kind of rude names where like they're abusing grace, license. They address that. I've heard some good sound teachers on the free grace side of things address this. They don't believe that you should live in sin. They just believe that you can and that you're not guaranteed to not to any degree or in any fashion. At least most of the teachers I've heard. I understand that there's nuance with this. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? So the continuing is a living in it, right? But he doesn't deny the fact they've died to it, right? Um, mm, let's go to the Old Testament. Yeah, grace is not cheap. I don't, I think that's a false, just a, a distasteful way of referring to free grace individuals. Cheap grace. First of all, grace is completely free to us. It costs us nothing. So to say it's cheap assumes there's a price involved. It costs Jesus everything. It's free to us. The Hebrew word for abide, we see in John 15, remain, continue. The word abide in the Hebrew is loon. It means to lodge, 
to spend the night, to abide, or to tarry. To tarry. Psalm 125 verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but it abides forever. So those who trust, believe, you might say abide, can't be moved along with Mount Zion, but abide, remain forever. Isaiah 32, 17 through 18. The effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, the quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. I'm going to relate the idea of abiding with rest. Okay. Psalm 91 verse 1, it says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. Remember how in the Greek, the word, and I understand it's different in the Hebrew, but in the Greek, the word for uh, abide can get translated as to dwell. Jesus dwelt among his own tabernacle, that kind of thing. He, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Which is another way of saying what Isaiah 32 said, to trust in the Lord. Psalm 125, to trust in the Lord. That's what it means to dwell in the shelter of the Most High or to abide in His shadow. You trust in Him alone. Um, let me bring up a couple more things as it relates to the idea of the theology of abiding. Okay, Jumping back to the New Testament, again, the Greek word for abide, meno, can be translated as remain in the English. Sometimes it's helpful uh, to note that the idea of remaining, as much as we've seen it to be a condition in John's gospel and writings and as it relates to faith and salvation, when remaining has to do with a location or a thing or a person, um, in the Greek, uh, it can refer to a one-time action as opposed to a condition or reality. So, like for instance, Matthew 2.15, Joseph remains in Egypt with his family. Matthew 26.38 and Mark 14.34, Jesus tells the disciples to remain there, to tarry and pray and watch. Mark 14.61 and Matthew 26.63, Jesus remains silent. Luke 1.56, Mary remains with Elizabeth for three months. Luke 10.7, Jesus tells the disciples to stay in the house they received him. Uh, John 7, 9, Jesus remains in Galilee. Uh, in, in the book of Acts, the apostles remain in specific locations a lot. Acts 14, 3, 28, 15, 35, 10, 48. Acts eleven twenty three, Paul exhorts the disciples to remain faithful. 1 Corinthians 7, 8, and 11, the disciples can remain single or unmarried. Um, Philippians 1, 24, Paul speaks of remaining or staying on the earth for their good. 1 Timothy 2, 12, women should remain Silent conversation for another day. James 1.12 and 5.11, the man who remains steadfast is blessed. Now, let me bring you to a few uh, as it relates to the character of God, as it relates to the word, as it relates to the people of God. The word remain, uh, this is said of Jesus. It says, you, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. 
The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. Remember how the Jews say the Messiah is supposed to remain. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he remains, stays, continues faithful. Hebrews 12.27, this phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, things that perish are removed. That is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Speaking to what it doesn't last, contrasted with what does last. Um, Hebrews 9.41, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting, same word, waiting for him, remaining, right? And then John 12, 24, the last instance is Jesus speaking, I think, more about his body going into the, the grave. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It's interesting that in John's gospel, again, chapter 12 combines the idea of abiding, remaining with fruit being born. So Jesus going down into the earth, um, Instead of remaining alone, he chooses to go into the, the grave and die for, for our sin and resurrect so that fruit could be born through that. He remains faithful to God. Um, in the Old Testament, there's, there's a lot of instances I could have brought up. Um, for instance, the word for remain is going to be different in the Hebrew. Ahmad means to take one's stand. Um, and it actually refers a lot to the wicked not remaining or the righteous remaining. Proverbs, I'll give you some scriptures to look at because I think we're coming to a close. Psalm 102, 25 through 28, which is what Hebrews 1 quotes. Proverbs 2, 20 through 22, those with integrity will remain in the land. Psalm 37, 18 through 19, the heritage of the righteous will remain forever. Psalm 49, 12, Man in his pride will not remain, he'll perish. Isaiah 66, 22, the new heavens and the new earth shall remain just as the name of his offspring shall remain. So it's the connection between the new earth and the people of God. Jeremiah 17, seven through eight, the fruitful blessed man who trusts in God, his leaves remain green, remain green and his fruit continues or remains. Ezekiel seven eleven. None of the violent, wicked, unbelieving people will remain in the land. So when we go back to John 15, we're going to address fruit tomorrow. I've purposely stayed away from fruit, but I just had to read it. Fruit is a part of the section, but I haven't described it yet. So you can't accuse me of being a works-based legalist or adding works to salvation or saying fruit is necessary. All I've said is that when it comes to John 15, what is most consistent with everything we see in John's gospel, his letter, as it relates to abiding, is that if you want to be consistent with John 15 and everything else we've seen, the person who abides and bears fruit is a Christian. The person who does not bear fruit and does not abide is taken away, removed, because of unbelief. 
So there's no fruit, there is fruit, and the one who bears fruit, right, when it gets pruned or if that person makes the decision, sanctification, to abide daily or do what God says, there will be much fruit, verse 5, much fruit, verse 8. So this is not talking about a believer who bears fruit and a believer who doesn't bear fruit and is just removed with the whole language of being clean, taken away, burned, gathered. The whole gathered idea is like the fish. Um, when Jesus talks about the fishermen who take, they, they grab a net and they, they sort the bad from the good, the bad are gathered and thrown out, right? Or the sheep and the goats are gathered and Jesus removes the goats from the earth. Not goat animals where he's like, I just hate those goats. People who represent, unbe who are unbelievers. Um, uh, when it comes to the wheat and the chaff, the chaff is blown away, the wheat is gathered. And so all this language of Jesus dealing with fruitful versus fruitless people, believers versus unbelievers, it's uncanny. It is uncanny. So, contrary to popular opinion, Usually when like a free grace individual goes through John 15, I've heard the Lordship side and I'm like, I don't know, like there's some things, but it's more the free grace side that is more convincing. And the reason I address it is, is because of the fact that it's more convincing. And you might be like, oh yeah, Lordship's completely wrong. Hold on. I'm not defending Lordship or attacking free grace or either, okay? But what I am going to say is there's both sides have some truth they bring to the table that I think we can really look at. Contrary to popular opinion, the free grace individual who reads John 15 really wants to make abiding an action. Like, do it, do it, do it. And they neglect the fact that prior to the decision to abide sanctification, there is abiding justification, abiding uh, being saved through faith, abiding believing, okay? So abiding is not this strenuous work. That's what they want to make it. Oh, so you got to abide, you got to do, you got to add to faith. No, abiding is believing. And then consequently from that will be the decision to what is going to look like as inconsistently as it may be abiding, the decision to abide and obey and do what God says and love and it's going to happen, right? But it's not a strenuous work to abide. Rather, I want you to understand the idea of abiding seems to note more of rest. The way Mary just sat at the feet of Jesus. And Martha's over there like dishes, vacuum. I don't even have electricity or a vacuum. I got to use my hands. All doing all this stuff, making Jesus all, all prepped and ready and making sure everything's good for him. And Mary's just sitting, enjoying, resting. And so I thought it would be helpful as we end, um, I did this a while ago, to note all the different instances of things resting. And you're going to see some correlation to abiding here. This is just a quick list. Genesis 1 verse 2, the spirit is hovering. Hebrew word, rakaf. Did I say it right, Silver? That means to grow soft, relax, or moving the spirit is hovering over the waters or resting over the waters, you might say. Um, Matthew 2.9, we see the star that leads the wise men to Jesus. It rests on the place where Jesus was. Um, just like we see the cloud, pillar of cloud by day, rest on the tabernacle. Uh, or, or the pillar of fire rest at night on the tabernacle. Or lift up when it's time to lead the people out in, in the wilderness. Um, we see the Spirit of God rest on Jesus. John literally uses the word abide, remain, stay. Um, trying to think where else. Noah's Ark rests on Mount Ararat after settling, after all that madness and chaos, right? 
The land is, experiences rest after the wicked are removed. The cloud rests on the tabernacle. Um, the spirit rests on the 70 elders in Numbers 11. The ark rests in the Jordan River as the people pass by. The ark of God rests in the temple in 1 Chronicles 6. It's a staying, it's an abiding, it's a remaining. Um, I think that's all that was worth noting. Specifically, the Spirit of God hovering in Genesis 1, the Spirit of God um, resting on Jesus at his baptism, the, the tongues of fire resting, Spirit of God resting at uh, the day of Pentecost on the disciples, the star that led the wise men resting on the house where baby Jesus was, um, the, the cloud or the fire, depending on if it's day or night, resting on the tabernacle, and then the, the ark resting in the temple, and then the cloud coming upon the temple, all of that resting language is indicative of the Spirit. The Spirit of God notes rest. So I think to abide in Jesus more than anything, to believe is to rest. Is to take Him at His word, rest from all your striving and works, and realize you can't earn your spot in heaven, you can't measure up, to rest in Him. Come to me, all who are weary, I'll give you rest. To put down your tools and say, you know what? I can't do enough good to outweigh my bad. I can't make up for all the good, the bad I've done. I trust in Jesus alone. I rely on him alone. I rest in him. That is what it means to abide. Contrary to popular belief, the striving, the working, the, the laboring, abiding is very restful. Even when fruit is being produced, even in the pruning process, even when I am doing my part, it is so restful. It's rest. It's rest. So in the next episode, tomorrow, we need to answer questions. What is fruit? Is fruit expected in the life of a believer? How much fruit is expected? Is fruit guaranteed? Is it automatic? Is it without my free will? Is it just possible but not guaranteed or expected? We have to answer those questions tomorrow. But I think I've done my job today explaining what abiding is. It's a reality, man. It's a mode of existing. It's a condition. It's a spiritual position. It's all those things. It is simply to believe. And even when you do obey the laws of God, love, partner with Him, you're still resting and believe. Those things that are done, the fruit that is born, is from a place of rest and faith. Okay? There's the theology of abiding. I'm going to get right to studying for tomorrow because i got a lot to put together. So I'm going to close this one down. Go to AboveReproachMinistry.com or check out any of the links in the description of this video. This is by far, for me, one of the more pivotal series in this ministry. Um, in my life, this series has been pivotal. I think it's super important that we share as much as we can and help people understand these very basic and yet so complex uh, concepts. All right. I love you guys. I'll see you guys later. Keep moving towards Jesus and see you guys tomorrow, Lord willing, if I don't die. <laughs>